how can we design spaces that make us measurably healthier, happier, and more productive? Join us on Built for Health, where we talk with public health professionals, researchers, and AEC practitioners on the latest knowledge and strategies to design, build, and operate healthier buildings. I'm Flavia Gray. I'm a Schneider Fellow at USGBC, and I'll be your host on Built for Health, brought to you by USGBC. Hi everyone, and welcome to Built for Health. I'm Flavia Gray, and today we will be talking about biophilia with Professor Peter Ken from the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington, and Bill Browning from Terrapin Bright Green. They will tell us about their professional journeys, the benefits of interacting with nature, and strategies and approaches of biophilic design. Hi, I'm Bill Browning. I'm a partner in Terrapin Bright Green. We are a research and consulting firm uh, working in the green building space. Uh, we do a fair amount of work in biophilia, biophilic design. We also do work in ecosystem services and metrics around that, and a lot of work on sort of crazy big complex green buildings. I'm Peter Kahn, and I'm a professor at the University of Washington in the Department of Psychology and the School of Environmental and Forest Sciences. And I direct the Human Interaction with Nature and Technological Systems Lab. So I'm interested in this intersection of adaptive relationship with nature uh, and also as our technologies are uh, exponentially growing in their computational sophistication and pervasiveness, what the interactions with those are in the intersection of nature and, and technology. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So one of the things that came up in both of your presentations is that we're already touching today's topic, biophilia. But for our audience, why don't we start by explaining what is biophilia? Well, A.O. Wilson coined the term in 1984 and referred to it as an innate affiliation that people have with nature and uh, natural systems. And Wilson coming off from an evolutionary perspective, argued, and I think argued rightly, that for tens and hundreds of thousands of years, we came of age with a, a vibrant, natural, rich world. And that the, you know, since the architecture of our minds and bodies and our, and our, and our, our spirits uh, are deeply interwoven with the natural world, and then in the Neolithic period of, you know, 10,000 years ago, as we moved from uh, Paleolithic to agriculture, then from agriculture to modernity, that has, uh, we've shifted to increasingly technological and urban world. But Wilson and uh, Steve Kellert's uh, account of biophilia, and again, I share this perspective, is that we are still, in a sense, tethered to this deep need for nature and that we flourish when we are connected to nature. And that's the broad umbrella around biophilia. Yeah, it, uh, it's really astonishing to see sort of the impacts both uh, psychologically and physiologically when, when this connection gets made. And the, and the science and the research that Peter and others are doing is uh, becoming more and more compelling and deeper and deeper. Uh, you see it not just psychologically, but you see then the physiological response to that experience. And so that's um, something that can be incredibly beneficial, particularly in a stressful 
situation of living in urban environments where people are attenuated from experiences of nature. And so looking at, you know, we're not going to be able to restore forests in the center of most cities or bring back uh, all the original habitat in many of those settings. And so how do we bring back uh, experiences of nature into the built environment uh, to gather those benefits? That's really interesting because I feel that before when we were living in more rural lives, interaction with nature was so common that you didn't really have to think about, you know, is there a benefit to this? Because that's the way that people were living and it's becoming more and more important as we move into cities. And so as more and more people are moving into cities and there is certain alienation from nature, how does that affect us? I mean, on a science level, I think you, we can say that studies have shown, and this is building on the ideas Bill just was highlighting, that interaction with nature can reduce stress and reduce depression and uh, reduce aggression, reduce diabetes, reduces obesity, reduces ADHD symptoms, it improves immune function, improves mental health. I mean, the list, the literature is of hundreds of studies now that people have been bringing together substantiate that. And so when we don't have that interaction, then in a sense, you have the reverse. You know, years ago, Paul Shepard wrote a book called Nature and Madness and talked about the alienation that you're speaking about, Flavia, on, on uh, the alienation from nature. And so on a more common sense perspective, um, we're going crazy. I mean, just to kind of say it straight, I, th I think in many ways, and this is what Paul Shepard was saying decades ago, we are a, a diseased society uh, and, and increasingly a diseased world. I mean, in the United States, uh, one third of us are uh, obese, uh, two thirds of us are overweight, um, asthma, 7%, diabetes is high. I mean, the list is on and on. And it, it, it's, it's insane. It, it, if, you, if you look at it, we should really, we should be up in arms. It's going this, we need a major revolution to, for the world we're creating. But we get used to this. This is tied to adaptation. We adapt to it. And then there's a shifting baseline that happens where each generation comes of age with a new normalized view of what normal is. But it's not normal. It's impoverished. It's, it's, it's diseased. But people aren't recognizing it. And so part of the power then, since we are part of a scientific culture, is to build on the scientific worldview and to bring the science forward to help people see the importance of nature in our lives. You were talking about adaptation. So how does it differ for the new generations, as you were saying, who are born in cities and are not used to playing around or spending much time in nature? Yes, it's... um. So I've, I've talked about this idea in what I've called environmental generational amnesia. And the idea here is that each generation is born into an increasingly impoverished natural world and constructs a new baseline for what normal is, but the normal is already increasingly impoverished. The key issue overlaying it with what Bill and I were talking about in terms of biophilia is that even as we adapt, not all adaptations are good for us. I mean, if we were... Uh, if we were put into uh, a, a prison cell, we would. most of us would not die. We would adapt to it. But just because we would adapt to it doesn't mean we would f do well physically and psychologically. 
And so I think that's what's happening to us now at a, at a cultural level and in effect as a species level as we increasingly build an increase in population and increasingly move to denser and denser urban areas. Judy Herwigan points out that zoos used to have cages that were basically like prison cells and we no longer consider that to be acceptable for uh, zoo animals and yet we still build office buildings with uh, cubicles that are much like that and, and think that's acceptable for humans. And uh, so, yeah, if we made that leap for zoo animals, maybe we should make that leap for ourselves. In a way, I feel it's like we're changing how much we interact with nature and what are the different approaches that we have of interacting with nature. And so before we used to be surrounded and immersed in nature, but we've been stepping back from it. How do you guys think about what interacting with nature is? Is it important to at least begin to just see versus touching versus being immersed? Well, I think some of it we know intuitively already. Uh, I will sometimes ask uh, groups a question. I said, okay, so where do you go on vacation? How many folks go to the beach? How many folks go to the mountain? How many folks go to a national park? How many go to their office? And very few, usually just a few architects, <laughs> say, oh, I go to my <laughs> office. But, uh, but otherwise, you know, most folks are to get restored, to get refreshed, they tend to go to those natural environments and have those experiences there. And so for us then, okay, so if we intuitively know that's what makes us feel happy and that's where we get restored and refreshed, how do we bring those qualities back into the built environment? And what Peter's work has been showing and work by Roger Ulrich and others is that in some cases, we can't bring real nature into the space. It's just not possible. We're doing some work in industrial bakeries right now. They're sterile spaces by definition. We can't even have natural materials in those spaces. But that doesn't mean that those people who are in that space for eight hours a day shouldn't have some connection to nature. And so we're looking at technological ways to bring experience of nature into an otherwise completely, by definition, sterile space. Which I think is, is fabulous. The um, caveat that I would raise is that from my body of research on technological interacting with the technological substitutions of nature is that usually you can get some benefits, but you can, uh, they're not as good or strong as the benefits of interacting with actual nature. So I think what Bill's highlighting is that in those spaces where there is um, very limited or no access to nature, then we can do improvements with it. But the worry that I have is that as we destroy more and more nature and increasingly live in urban environments that are increasingly dense, that we will be then thinking that since we get some benefits from technological nature, then we don't really need real nature anymore because we're getting we're benchmarking it and not against actual nature, but against nothing. And then that will allow more technological nature to get developed, but it will also not provide a way to shut down the destruction of nature. <laughs> 
Yeah, and that's actually a really good point. And in these, in the case of these bakeries, uh, outside of the buildings, they're doing a bunch of habitat restoration and actually creating habitats. And in the break areas and the non-sterile spaces of the buildings, they've sort of gone wild with biophilic design interventions, use of natural materials, uh, looking at putting in water features, putting in plantings, um, creating refuge spaces, sort of more than you would typically do otherwise for those periods when the people aren't in the sterile spaces to give them the immersion and contact with real actual nature. Yeah, that's marvelous. Um, you, know, you can see similar things with hospitals settings and what you can do within the hospital itself and what you can do then just outside the hospital in terms of healing gardens, not just for the patients, but for the, you know, the, the doctors and the other staff. Yeah, it's really amazing to see how much uh, the employee retention numbers change on hospitals that have healing gardens that the staff can use along with the patients. It really, really changes the the stress level of the staff and the um, and the their ability to stay in those stressful environments. Yeah, the one thing I would uh, add, Flavia, based on your initial question was for me what I would like to highlight is the uh, importance of not simply visually interacting with nature but using all of our senses for the interaction and I think we tend to be overly um, indulgent in a sense predisposed to using vision as our as our sensory mode I mean when Bill talks about going you know where do you so many people go to the ocean or beach, uh, and it's so restorative. But if you think of two types of interactions, one is you're sitting on, on a bluff top in your car, looking out onto the ocean, that could be called a nature beach experience. Or you could be along the beach, you know, shoes off, walking along the water with, you know, in and out of the waves. And those, those two experiences are vastly different in terms of the, uh, both the physical, psychological effects and also in terms of the human spirit. One of them in the car is focused largely on vision as the sense, the walking, all of the senses involved. So when I think about design uh, or biophilic design, I'm calling it now, uh, some of my work is focused on what I call interaction pattern design, trying to think about ways of emphasizing uh, designs that, that 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 emphasize the interaction with all of the senses and not relying upon vision. And I think uh, much of Bill's work is focused in that way as well. Yeah, we find that uh, you know, I'm trained as a designer. So as a designer, we'll tend to default to what does it look like? And in many cases, particularly with biophilic design, we need to get into what does it smell like? What's the what does it feel like? What's the temperature of the surface? What's the sound it's making? All of those things. And we find that when you combine those different senses together, the impact is so much stronger and so much more memorable. Part of what Bill has been doing is quantifying effects in the built environment based on some of his post-occupancy studies. I And it's just really important work, and it's been hard to to do, and I hope I'll speak a little about it. The other part, I think, to human nature interaction that is 
equally important um, but is that which is non-quantifiable. And I think that there's parts of human consciousness that are not, we're not just machines, we're not computational systems only. And the depth of awareness, I mean, when Wilson talks about the human spirit, you can talk about the spirit and either be a transcendentalist or not. I mean, there's something deep about consciousness that can access a type of awareness in space that is some of the deepest parts of our human existence. I mean, and I think we've all experienced this when we've been outside in nature and, and our, our thinking slows down. Um, our, but just because our thinking slows down doesn't mean we're dumbing down. And in effect, other parts of our brain are being activated. We're highly alert, but in a very quiet sort of way. Um, and, in the, and also, the more wild an area is, I think the more the wildness of the area demands not simply a restorative quality, but it demands attention as well, but a very quiet sort of attention. So it's, there's something deep and beautiful of, of that form of interaction with not just domestic, but more wild forms of nature that are not simply tied to the metrics of what are the physiological benefits and um, mental benefits, but something that speaks to again, what someone like Yale Wilson talks about in terms of the human spirit. So I just would like to have that as part of our discussion so that as we talk about benefits of nature, that we don't end up in a sense using nature or dominating over nature, yet again, trying to get something from nature for our benefits. Because in some ways, I think one of the central overarching problems of our world today is that we see ourselves in domination over, over other people and over nature. And if we just treat nature as another thing, as a resource to get benefits from, I think we're missing what the actual relationship is between humans and nature. One of the relationships I'm always fascinated by is just the experience of awe in nature. So standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon, walking through a redwood forest, uh, scuba diving in a kelp forest, or on a really healthy coral reef and just that experience that rarely you uh, occurs in the built environment. Um, I mean, it does in, maybe in a great cathedral, but or great religious space, but it is a, it is a experience that touches you on sort of the spiritual religious level, regardless of the, of your background. And that's, not something you can quantify, not something in that, but it is a, a profound experience that um, that is most frequently occurs in, in nature. Great. So let's move on to explaining a little bit about biophilic design. So this has been a great introduction because we've been making some of the examples, talking about the bakery, about different approaches that we can take. But let's go back to explain what is biophilic design and what are some of the approaches that we can take to address it? For us, biophilic design is really about how do we bring some of those experiences of nature into the built environment. And we find that it kind of, the science sort of falls into three broad categories. The first one we call nature in the space and which uh, Stephen Kellert called uh, direct experience of nature. And it's, really that, trying to find ways to bring 
direct experiences of nature into the built environment. So plants, animal, water, sunlight, air movement, uh, different experiences of thermal experiences, uh, smell, sound, direct experiences of nature in the built environment. The next category are what we call natural analogs, and these are indirect experiences of nature, and so they're representational nature. So it's ornamentation it, that uh, references nature. It's the use of biomorphic forms. It's a dance between complexity and order that you see in nature and in really great architecture. Uh, it's the use of fractals uh, in the built environment. And then the third category are physical aspects of the, of the three-dimensional space, what we call nature of the space. And these are spatial patterns that elicit very distinct responses. And there are four of those that we've been pursuing most heavily. We're looking at some others, but the four are uh, prospects, so an unimpeded view through space. Refuge, a space where you are protected, nurtured, and sheltered. Uh, typically, your back is protected, and you may have some canopy overhead. Mystery, or some research is called enticement, where there's some information offered, but not complete information about what's ahead of you. And you just sort of feel compelled to go around that path in the corner or up that curving street to see what's around, what's next. And mystery is a fun one because people assume that it's just visual, but you can do mystery quite well with sound and scent. You know, think about the the bakery that's putting its uh, exhaust out onto the uh, sidewalk, and you just have to go smell and see what's in that bakery window. And then finally, risk peril, uh, which is where there's potential danger, uh, but also implied safety. Um, so it's the, you know, it's the balcony overlooking the high cliff. You know, uh, it's the stepping stones through the pond. Um, it's things like that. So risk peril. Risk peril is a fun one. You don't want to use too much of it. <laughs> um, and so these are, and we find that these strategies really support a lot of different design uh, because they're not fixed as here are the exact dimensions, you know, how you have to do it. They're more, here are the, here's the nature of the experience you're trying to create in the space. And that gets modified by culture. It gets modified by the climate, by your building traditions. Uh, there are many, many, many ways of uh, having those experiences. So what we were trying to catalog and what, we, what we've cataloged, at least initially now, are what we call 14 patterns of biophilic design. So 14 different experiences that help support uh, biophilic ex responses in the built environment. Perfect. So why don't we give some specific examples? So you were talking, for example, about the bakery. What are some specific techniques that were used in this project? For example, nature in the space. So for nature in the space, um, in the bakery itself, uh, in one of the bakeries, we were able to get some windows in, uh, which doesn't sound like a huge innovation, but in a sterile uh, space actually was quite difficult. 
to get allowed to put windows in. And uh, those are great. They benefit, they have a view out to the landscape, which are benefit for the daytime shifts, but not quite as helpful for the folks who can't see out to the landscape at night. So within the uh, space, the company is looking to put up uh, projectors that will project uh, images of nature onto these huge, very tall white metal walls. And uh, because of their social media feed, uh, they get pictures of people out eating their products uh, on a kayak, on a beach, in the mountains, in the forest. And so those will change uh, on a daily basis. In the break spaces and outside the building, uh, they're doing work to restore native habitats. They've got areas where people can go out and sit. Uh, and experience nature. They've got, um, they're working on uh, also interior courtyard gardens for when it's not, it's not, not too pleasant to be outside, uh, even looking at water features in those. Uh, so looking at ways of direct experience of nature um, when I'm in the non-sterile spaces. So thinking about nature in the space, what are some of the obstacles that you find you were talking in this case about the sterile environments, but for offices, houses, other type of buildings, how do you convince people of what are the issues that they have to deal with? Most people's assumption is that uh, when we talk about nature in the space and bringing biophilic experiences into the built environment, they assume that we just mean plants and water. Uh, and those are good things to have. But even those need to be thought about how we put them in. If we just put in a monoculture of ivy completely covering a, a wall, that's pretty, but not as effective as actually having a smaller area that's highly biodiverse. Uh, or putting in a monoculture of ficus trees all through the office. Pretty nice, uh, better than nothing. But actually more effective is to have a couple, one or two small clumps of maybe a ficus with three or four other plants around it that create this, in effect, microhabitat. And uh, we look at those, and it's sort of like the difference between looking at a really beautiful little bonsai and the same plant just in, uh, in a pot. And one looks like a little habitat, and we project ourselves into that, and the other is a pretty plant. Uh, and we kind of make distinctions between those two. But bringing variable light and bringing daylight into a space, having the ability to open windows and hear the sounds outside, feel the breeze, those sorts of things are really powerful biophilic experiences. Um, so things like that are other ways of bringing nature into the built environment. Okay. What about the natural analogs? So in the natural analogs, uh, there are several techniques. Uh, one are um, our use of patterns, for instance, that are analogs of nature. So uh, and you know you see obviously fabrics and decoration that are leaves and flowers and that, and that's been done uh, from time immemorial. There's a lot of symbolic uh, nature to that, but there's also you know, responses around that. We're also seeing designers who are saying, okay, we're gonna create a carpet pattern that 
mimics moss or mimics stone. It's not fake stone, it's not fake moss, but it has some of the qualities both uh, texturally and uh, visually. Uh, and people seem to respond very strongly to that. Use of na natural materials. Um, there's, people have exhibited a really strong preference for natural materials. And we've talked to some folks doing research in that, and they're not sure if it may be because of sort of what they call semantic contact. I see wood, and I know that that came from a tree, and I know that was alive, and so I sort of treat that as a, an experience of nature. Or because when I look at a piece of wood, no two pieces are the same, and you see sort of embedded layers of uh, mixed patterns in those. So you see a fractal nature to that as well. And we have a very, very strong preference for fractals. Fractals elicit a very strong brain response, particularly moving fractals. You know, we'll sit in front of a fireplace for hours, fascinated. There's no rational reason why I should do that, but it's really quite amazing. Uh, we'll sit and watch waves for a very long time as well, and that's moving fractals as well. So those are ways of, uh, of thinking about natural analogs. Nature in the space are, of course, the, the spatial configurations. And, you know, you can play this game of, one of the questions we'll typically ask people is, if I come into a restaurant and you have your choice of spaces in, in the restaurant, uh, the round tables in the middle, or high back booths around the perimeter, where do most people like to go first? Uh, most people typically vote for the high back booths. Now, when I'm in the high back booth, I have my back is protected. I've got this amazing little refuge space, but I also tend to have the view across the whole rest of the restaurant. So now I have prospect and refuge combined. Uh, another classic example would be uh, there's so many great cities that have beautiful old craftsman bungalows. And a lot of those bungalows have a front porch that's about 18 inches up and have this big overhanging roof. And when you're sitting in a comfortable chair on that porch, you've got amazing prospect up and down the street in this fantastic refuge space. And so this is stuff that we intuitively know, and it's just sort of saying, how do we uh, pull these patterns and be articulate about it and intentional about it as well. Thinking about from the individual building space to thinking about more regionally, is biophilic design in the way that Bill's been talking about it. And then when I bring in this interaction idea, I've been working for some years now on what I call interaction pattern design. So it's, it's, it's a different notion, a little bit different notion of a pattern. I mean, you can think of a pattern as a um, way of framing a form of interaction that if you see different instantiations or examples of those interactions happening, you would say, oh, that's the same thing. It's just with different nature in a different context. So walking along an edge of nature is a pattern. And if you recognize that walking along edges is just a powerful experience, then you can that helps explain like why the seashore then all of a sudden becomes this powerful edge. But it's not just the seashore because if you can have a lake in a city. In Seattle, we have a, a lake called Green Lake and there's a path around Green Lake and it's marvelous design feature at a regional level that is hugely uh, uh, used because I think in part it's enacting this pattern of walking 
an edge or running an edge or biking an edge. The, a pattern, the same of, of, of walking edges, is it could just be uh, the edge of a meadow or a forest. In the same way that Bill's talking about refuge, if you're just in the middle of a meadow, it's a somewhat vulnerable spot. But if you're putting a trail in, you know, five feet or so from the edge of a forest in a meadow, now, now you have a very convivial place to walk. So that's an example of a pattern. Another pattern would be um, movement away from a human settlement and coming back and the return. So if we go back to biophilia and the evolutionary origins, you recognize that that, that pattern was enacted every day of our lives, of, of the hunter and gatherer of moving out. And, and just what Bill's talking about, there's some peril. And so you become more alert, and, but it's exciting. And there's a lot of attention and focus. And then the return back. Now, if we recognize that as a deep pattern in in our being, uh, if you convert railroad trails that we have in Seattle, uh, the Burke Gilman Trail in Seattle has 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 miles now. Um, that uh, certainly works as a commuter uh, pathway, biking and walking and running. But it allows people to interact with a regional landscape that you can go out a long distance, walking, running, biking, and come back. And that's a, just just beautiful pattern to enact um when i'm when i'm when i'm uh, old and can barely walk i want to be able to open the door and walk out 50 feet and then come back i might have a walker or something but that's that's that pattern being enacted so if we recognize the patterns of interaction that we want to foster we can have more wild versions of it and more domestic versions of it um, domestic are important, of course, but what I would also highlight going back to Wilson's account of biophilia and the more wild evolutionary origins um, of us as a species, we need more wildness in our lives. And I'll, I'll just say it straight. I think uh, we as environmentalists have gotten too soft. I think it's part of our own shifting baseline, and our own conditioning that we're born into in an increasingly urban world. And now, as we as environmentalists are talking about nature, we're... Mm, we are often talking about local, the importance of local domestic nature, and of course that's important, but I do think that we need to push back on that too and always keep open. How can we take these interactions and make them in our design of regional environments, make them slightly more wild, slightly bigger, slightly more autonomous, self-organizing, and uh, the beautiful relationships that we form with nature then, not only for, again, for our physical and psychological health, but for the depth of the human spirit. I'd like to loop back to Peter's comment about uh, wild nature and, and thinking about uh, you know, how, peop how excited people are that there's a mountain lion living uh, you know, near Topanga Canyon and how many people track that, uh, that animal and the uh, peregrine falcons in, uh, in New York City and, you know, these, you know, uh, and the leopards in Mumbai that, you know, people know are there and are tracking and, um, and how that's, you know, that's part of, that's wild nature. And those are, um, you know, those are things that will eat you. And yet we are accepting and having them living, you know, near us. And this idea that, um, you know, 
maybe we can have dangerous animals around again, and and uh, but we have to learn how to live with them. And um, you know, as Rob Watson at NRDC used to say, um, there are seven billion people. There are five thousand tigers. I think we won this contest. Are we going to be good winners, right? And make sure that we keep some of those other other uh, species around with us, because um, otherwise it's going to get kind of lonely. Well, and you were saying that one of the nature in the space approaches is having animals in the space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean we typically default to. Yeah, aquariums and bird cages and dogs and cats and domestic animals, uh, but it is pretty exciting to see, uh, you know, the support for having hawks nesting on tall buildings in in major cities and you know the people the cameras then and people really engaging in that and seeing um, the ospreys come back to harbors and. Um, seeing you know that connection with nature coming back and uh, people getting excited about that and realizing you know the importance of having living predators back in in healthy ecosystems great I want to look back to one of the hurdles that Peter was talking about earlier and it's about effectiveness and what strategies can be measured and so for someone who wants to measure the effectiveness of what they're doing in terms of biophilic design, what would you recommend? What are some things that they could measure, some metrics that they can monitor? In our work, we've been trying to do more and more post-occupancy uh, work. So before an intervention, uh, biophilic design intervention is done in a place or a space, doing physical measurements of what are the conditions in the space, doing observational studies of how people are using the space, And then doing surveys of asking people's response to the space. The intervention is then put in and then come back and see are there changes in people's use patterns in those spaces and survey them as well and, and see if their attitudes and, and what they're self-reporting about experience uh, changes as well. Um, you know, Biophilic interventions can be very in inexpensive or some can be pretty elaborate and expensive. Either way, we should know that, you know, we want to know that what we're doing is effective and then catalog those so we have more and more knowledge about, okay, these are effective interventions and these are less so. Also in our audience, we're going to have architects, engineers, construction managers, but people who operate buildings and they can help build up the resources that can help us know what is effective, what is not. So what would you call for them? Like, what information do we need? What should we be measuring so that we can share with the community? Well, some of the stuff that uh, we are concerned about are thinking about um, interventions that require maintenance and understanding why the, you know, it's important to maintain them. Uh, there's nothing sadder than a dying green wall. And, um, and in some ways that's really counterproductive. And just reminding folks that they have, you know, when we think about the cost of a office building, to put it in economic terms, on an annual basis, the energy uh, cost is actually only about 1% of the building of the total building cost. And yet that's, you know, from carbon issues and 
operational issues and cost issues, we typically focus on that from a green building standpoint. Those are important. Rent is about 9%, and the rest is the cost of the people. So to put that, you know, flip that around, a 1% gain in productivity is equivalent to the entire energy bill. And so we really, really need to focus on how do we manage buildings to support the well-being of the people in those buildings. And some of that's programmatic, uh, and some of that is interventions. And so while it may sound crazy to spend a bunch of money supporting other living things in our spaces, it has a really significant economic benefit to our entire, to companies and families and to our overall well-being. Great. And just to wrap it up, for the people who want to learn more and want to follow up, what are some resources that would you recommend for them? I'll recommend a few uh, resources that people can look at. Uh, there are a number of websites. Uh, there's the Biophilic Design Initiative that uh, is a partnership of the Living Futures folks and Interface and Google and Terrapin and several other organizations. The Phipps Conservatory is also a major player in that. There's the Biophilic Cities Network, which is a network of cities uh, around the world who are sharing practices about how do we bring experiences of biophilia to populations on a citywide scale, and which is really, really exciting. On our website, on terrapinbrightdream.com, we have a number of white papers and case studies that we've been uh, publishing and collecting that people can download for free. Humanspaces.com is another website that uh, publishes research on biophilia and biophilic design, and they have some great resources on there as well. And there are a number of great books out. There's obviously the, the original piece that really lays out this original science, which is the biophilia hypothesis that Peter has writing in and that uh, was edited by Stephen Kellert and E.O. Wilson. There's Biophilic Design, which is a series of a follow-up book that is the introduction to the science of biophilic design. Our publication's 14 Patterns of Biophilic Design. Uh, there are some other great ones that are coming out in the next few months. Stephen Kellert, who unfortunately died a few months ago, his last book, I just got to finish reading it, uh, the manuscript uh, a few weeks ago, is going to be really fantastic, and that'll be out in early 2018. And then Amanda Sturgeon is uh, at Living Futures has uh, got a manuscript that's just about done on really great case studies of biophilic design as well. Yeah, those are all fabulous. Uh, even going back to uh, Wilson, you know, on, on a very broad level, thinking of E.O. Wilson's 1984 book on biophilia, if, if people are interested in just seeing a, just an early, beautiful, almost lyrical account of how deep nature is within us. You know, and, and pe people like Paul Shepard that I, I mentioned, uh, Jack Turner on the abstract wild, and to, to try to bring forward an articulation of not just the domestic, but the more wild forms of interaction. Think about uh, a book on, on technological nature. It's called Technological Adaptation and the Future of Human Life. So if you're interested in these sorts of the sorts of studies you were talking about uh, with you know, dis window display and what what those studies look like, as well as this the larger issue of can we adapt out of this problem? 
that's a, a nice resource. There's a I have an edited volume uh, a collaborator on the rediscovery of the wild. So that follows people like Dave Foreman and Paul Shepard and others trying to speak about the power of, of wildness in human lives and also an edited volume in eco-psychology that talks about the power of nature within human lives. So those are more broad resources, but it, if you're really interested in the practice and the built environment, I, I think the references that, that Bill is highlighting are just go-to go to places and he and his firm have been leading uh, biophilic design nationally internationally so it's just very exciting work that he's been doing well we're so excited to have the two of you thank you so much this has been incredibly interesting and we're so excited to have you thank you thank you i hope you enjoyed this engaging conversation with peter can from the department of psychology at the university of washington and Bill Browning from Terrapin Bright Green. Our guests discuss the physical and psychological benefits of interacting with nature and some strategies to incorporate nature in the space, natural analogs, and nature of the space as part of biophilic design. To learn more, check out the biophilia courses on the education platform at usgbc.org, including Green Design, Biophilia and the Human Affinity for Nature, and Biophilia, Moving from Theory to Reality. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Built for Health by USGBC. Now we want to hear from you. What was your favorite part of today's episode? What are your best practices and strategies? Share with us on Facebook or Twitter at USGBC. To learn more, visit our website at usgbc.org. Thanks for listening.